This is JAMDA on the go. Your review of the content featured in JAMDA, the research-focused monthly journal of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. Did you know that the post-acute and long-term care setting has one of the highest polypharmacy rates, which increases the risk for adverse events and drug interactions? Join AMDA's new initiative. It's called Drive to Deprescribe, Optimizing Medication Use in PALTC. Learn more at paltc.org slash drive, the number two, deprescribe. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host for Jammed on the Go, Dr. Wayne Saltzman. Welcome to Jamda on the Go. This podcast will spotlight articles from the June 2021 issue of Jamda, the Journal of the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Once again, we will be speaking with Jamda co-editor-in-chief, Dr. Philip Sloan, and associate editor, Dr. Mallory Brown. Dr. Sloan is a family physician and geriatrician with a master's degree in public health. He is the Elizabeth and Oscar Goodwin Distinguished Professor of Family Medicine and Geriatrics at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and co-director for the program on aging, disability, and long-term care at the Cecil G. Shep Center for Health Services Research. Dr. Brown is also a family physician and geriatrician at the University of North Carolina, where she is an associate professor of family medicine and director of the residency training program. Once again, uh, Drs. Brown and Sloan, welcome to Jamda on the Go. Thanks. So what will we be talking about in the June 2021 issue as Spotlight Articles today? I'm going to discuss the results of a national study around vaccine hesitancy among nursing home staff. And the other paper I'll present is a study linking vision and hearing impairment to the development of delirium. And Dr. Sloan, how about the two others? Uh, the first article is about orthostatic hypotension and the definition and, and the different definitions and linkage to falls and fractures. And the second one is preliminary work on designing a diaper for use as a urine collection tool. And of course, you meant undergarment protection, but that's neither here nor there. And how about if we get started? So, uh Dr. Brown, you'll be introducing the article, Somebody Like Me, Understanding COVID-19 Vaccine Hesitancy Among Staff in the Skilled Nursing Facilities. And I have to tell you, from from the the onset, I was taken, um, two of the authors uh, kind of sprung out at me. One was Sarah Berry, who is uh, uh, a Harvard geriatrician and the fellowship director at one of the Harvard programs. And, um, and David Gifford, who is the chief medical officer for the American Healthcare Association. So two very, very big names looking at an issue, which to me, um, you know, focused on a unique set of individuals in a unique part of the healthcare system, but who were really um, no different than any other members of their community. But that's my thoughts. Tell me, to tell me about yours and your thoughts about this article. Yeah, it's it's really a fascinating and well-written article, and I think definitely worth a read. Um, but I'll try to I'll try to just summarize it for um, those of you listening. We know we have spent many, um, 
many of these particular podcasts talking at least a bit about COVID. And so over the past 16 months, we've frequently discussed COVID as well as its impact on our listeners and our residents. Um, coronavirus has obviously, as we know, disproportionately affected skilled nursing facility residents and staff in the United States with the highest rates of infection and mortality in both groups. Since the pandemic began, approximately 40% of all U.S. coronavirus fatal fatalities are in short-term nursing facilities or similar long-term care facilities. Even with vaccination in place, outbreaks in facilities remain largely due to asymptomatic spread by staff. The vaccination of skilled nursing facility staff is critical. We've talked about this before, um, but it's incredibly important component in the battle against COVID-19. The health of these workers is completely entangled with the health of those that they care for. So vaccination of short-term nursing staff is key to increasing uptake of the vaccine, reducing health disparities and reopening short-term nursing facilities to the, our visitors. The vaccine protects staff personally and against compounding existing health disparities. Which I, I thought that this article really, the authors really were very thoughtful about why this is and, and what it entails. Um, so as we've discussed fairly recently on Jammed On The Go, short-term nursing facility staff are often made up of a diverse group of individuals. Hmm. Nursing assistants comprise 53% of short-term nursing facility workforce and of which are approximately 90% women, 49% black or Latino, 44% living in low income households and 36% are uninsured or on public health care. Thus, these are amongst the most vulnerable groups for contracting COVID in the community, as well as in their front lines of their jobs. Additionally, staff shortages impact the health, safety, and quality of life of residents, as well as other workers. Shortages during the pandemic have disproportionately affected nursing homes, caring for our most disadvantaged populations with a higher percentage of revenue from Medicaid in particular. Staff must be vaccinated to protect those that they care for intimately. And lastly, staff must be vaccinated in order to permit visitors back into our facilities, which will help in battling our ongoing pandemic of loneliness and mental health concerns that I think we're just starting to see um, really start to improve in many facilities across the country that have had good staff vaccination rates. Yet we all know that some uh, short-term nursing facility staff are declining to be vaccinated. The purpose of this article was to highlight particular reasons for COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy reported by staff of these facilities and understand factors that could potentially reduce that hesitancy. The authors had five virtual focus groups with a total of 58 staff members, which were conducted amongst staff of short-term nursing facilities as part of a larger project to improve vaccine uptake. The focus groups were held between December 18th and 23rd of 2020. So just around the time that um, Moderna and Pfizer vaccines were approved. Controls were put into place to ensure diversity amongst participants and focus groups sought out to elicit concerns, perspectives, and experiences related to COVID-19 testing and vaccination. The study found that some staff are hesitant to receive the COVID-19 vaccine, which I'm, um, I anticipate many of us who are working in these facilities have seen as well. 
Reasons for this hesitancy included beliefs that vaccines have been developed too fast and without sufficient testing, that there's a lack of knowledge around the long-term effects, personal fears about pre-existing medical conditions or impending pregnancies, and more general distrust of the government. Short-term nursing staff indicate that seeing people like themselves receive the vaccine is more important than seeing public figures do so. So the study concluded that public health needs to really refocus its efforts on spreading information on social media platforms using a heterogeneous group of messengers who are like the target audience. Rapid response to misinformation has to be key to address vaccine hesitancy. There's an urgent need to develop provider, academic, community partnerships, which can respond to COVID-19 in the expect, as we expect future pandemics. And these critical partnerships not only protect against disruption and fragmentation and the ability to conduct research in these facilities, but also to serve as a key element in reducing vaccine hesitancy. Yeah, what what a what a well-written article. I completely agree with you. You know, and I was and I was thinking as I was reading it, I, I've had discussions in my own organization, an organization that cares for some of the most medically complex um, behavioral health uh, uh, laden uh, individuals in our in our state. And they don't want to hear from me, Wayne Saltzman, the mm. doctor, they want to hear from um, from folks in their community that they trust and that they and that they respect. This is a this is not a doctor standing on a soapbox issue anymore. This is this is who can I trust and um, I completely resonates with me and and I think we all are urging, you know, leaders and focal individuals of respect in the communities to stand up and and really and really help our other members in in these communities um, uh, appreciate how how important and vital uh, the vaccine is. Okay, so um, our next paper, Delayed Blood Pressure Recovery After Standing Independently Predicts Fracture in Community-Dwelling Older Adults. <laughs> As I'm sure with many other readers of JAMDA, this article resonated with me as well, because as a geriatrician, um, you know, the guidelines I learned in medical school and residency about checking um, for orthostatic hypotension just do not jibe when it comes to assessing an older individuals for all the reasons that we know. But Dr. Sloan, um, lead us through this, uh, this once again, very interesting paper. <laughs> Wayne, I just, you've already opened up the topic for me. <laughs> Defining and measuring orthostatic hypotension, no, we all know it's a can of worms. The classical definition is a drop in systolic blood pressure of greater than or equal to 20 millimeters of mercury or a diastolic blood pressure drop of greater than or equal to 10 millimeters of mercury within three minutes after standing. Uh, and by classical definition, I mean one that was endorsed by four different autonomic societies across the globe. The problem is that those of us who work in geriatrics know this definition has serious limitations, you know. I mean, one is that older persons don't need their blood pressure to drop that far to get woozy and fall. Right. And another is that some people drop their blood pressure only after standing for 20 or 30 minutes, you know, delayed orthostasis, which I've seen, you know, a number of times. And another is that 
when do you measure it? You do measure it after standing right away, 30 seconds after standing, a minute after standing, three minutes after standing, you know, all of the above. And then there's research, you know, that shows that some people drop their blood pressure only in the first 30 seconds. And what does that mean, you know? And then they'll fit, injure themselves. They get up, you know, like mixturation syncope, you know? Yeah. Sits in the toilet, goes to the bathroom, stands up, and boom. So I never had a whole lot of faith in this definition. Mm -hmm. And uh, this particular article actually helps me understand a little more why this is. So do you have any comments, Wayne, on how you measure orthostasis? You know, I, I, I'll just say that, uh, you know, in the, in the office, um, you know, I, uh, it, it was with, I classically did it, Dutch Sloan, within, within 30 seconds of standing, I was checking a blood pressure because I just, you know, the, the folks that I were taking care of, I knew that if they were going to fall, it was going to happen within 30 seconds of their, of their standing up. So I traditionally uh, did that. And I was never, I was never, um, uh, you know, disappointed, if I could use that term, that folks' blood pressure went down within that period of time uh, for which they, they either did or did not feel something, but that I knew that they were at risk and you know compression hose automatically kind of thing well you know this article sort of confirms that although the trouble is what are the norms you know yeah, yeah. so um one of the interesting things about this study is they use this thing called a phenometer midi which is they don't have anymore they have it called a phenopress nova anyway it's a sensor that fits over the fingertip and measures blood pressure non-invasively on a beat-to-beat -beat basis so it's more sensitive than, you know, checking the blood pressure, you know, with your manometer every, you know, so many minutes. Wow. So I tried to find out how much one of these costs and they're, you know, the ads don't want it. They want you to co contact them for a price, you know, which means, <laughs> you know it means it's expensive. Wow. So the best I could do was find a used one on eBay for a thousand dollars. Oh, so anyway, uh, at this study, you know, it was researchers, they managed to purchase one probably on a grant. And they studied healthy community-dwelling persons aged 50 and older, average age 61. So they're healthy people. And they would have them lie for 10 minutes, lie down, not tell mistruths. They have them lie down for 10 minutes. And then they would discover that the blood pressure would drop at first with a systolic, this vomiting out, bottoming out around 15 seconds after standing up. And this was like a systolic, you know, averaging 30 millimeter drop of mercury and this is healthy people they recover mm. quickly they by 30 seconds they're almost back to their starting systolic pressure interesting there's wow. some interesting graphs in the article yeah but some people maintain their blood pressure for longer now, even though they're directly healthy they're not falling and of their study sample of 3117 people 16 percent still met the orthostasis definition at 30 seconds 11 percent at 60 seconds and 10 percent at 90 seconds so you know, if it stays down it has a tendency of staying down for a while the weird thing is very few risk factors predicted orthostasis age a little bit not that much female gender a little bit not that much frailty not hypertensive hypertensive use no uh it was a relatively healthy group so i think a frailer po population maybe we would find some other risk factors but the the point is healthy older people do this 
and you can't tell who's going to do it mm. based on their kind of demographics. Mm. Mm. So then they followed these people for eight years. And they found that delayed blood pressure recovery at 30 and 60 seconds was associated with more than doubling of the eight-year risk of any fracture. And lack of blood pressure recovery at 30 seconds was associated with a four-fold increase in eight-year hip fracture risk. And there you go. Yeah, so what that tells me is that you can take, you know, healthy people, if their blood pressure doesn't come up quickly, they're probably, well, we don't know, more susceptible to drugs, more susceptible to various stuff. We mm -hmm. don't know. There, there's something about them. And so for me, the bottom line is that measurement for orthostasis at 30 seconds, you know, might be worth building into a well-adult evaluation because delayed blood pressure recovery is potentially modifiable. You know, you can have them be real careful about their medicines, you know, like antihypertensive and antidepressants, you know, promote better fluid intake, you know, exercise so those lower extremity muscles have better tone. And they also said, you know, maybe you want to screen these people for osteoporosis because they're a higher risk group. Hmm. So, very interesting to me. I love the article. It should definitely be distributed to, um, to physical exam preceptors on really considering the needs of the older adult. But you know, I had, uh, I had one other statement as I was thinking about their $1,000 phenomenon on eBay. Remember when oximeters were $1,000? So I can only huh. imagine that, um, yeah. that if, this, uh, if this goes someplace, then soon we'll be able to buy a handheld phenomenon for the same price that we can buy an oximeter today. So cool. Yeah. And now, a word from our sponsor, U.S. Post-Acute Care. Let's talk for a minute about goals of care conversations. Now more than ever, post-acute clinicians should initiate these discussions with their patients. At U.S. Post-Acute Care, our clinical team is committed to regular goals of care conversations with each seriously ill patient. We help our patients to think through their goals and express what's most important to them. Now we can develop a care plan that aligns with their goals and their values. Using a technique first developed by Ariadne Labs, these structured conversations have shown meaningful improvements in the quality, cost, and effectiveness of care. Our chief medical officer, Dr. Kevin Henning, is highly committed to making the goals of care conversation a foundation of effective care for our clinical team. At US Post-Acute Care, that's what we think. Now we'd like to know what you think. You can reach us at uspostacutecare.com or on LinkedIn, and Dr. Henning will be happy to respond. Thanks for listening. Uh, so our third paper, uh, visual and hearing impairment are associated with delirium in hospitalized patients, results of a multi-site prevalence study. And Dr. Brown, I, I, I have to tell you, you know, once again, geriatrician to geriatrician, I first thought to myself, seriously, <laughs> don't we know this already? Isn't this what we've been preaching since, um, since we were all in training? But clearly, uh, you know, with the foresight of editors like, uh, like you and, and Dr. Sloan, there's clearly a, a reason why. And um, we get some more information out of this, don't we? We do. I I agree, Wayne. I think we talk about this a lot, and um, it's always nice to have work that really supports what we are um, what we are telling people. So I thought 
for that reason, this was interesting. Hmm. Um, but there's a few other really interesting tidbits through this as well. Um, we know delirium, acute brain dysfunction, characterized by inattention and impaired awareness with fluctuations. I've just been lecturing on it earlier this week. Um, <laughs> it affects on average one of five hospitalized older adults. Its prevalent is, prevalence is even higher when it occurs in the context of dementia, ranging from, and this, these statistics always get me, something from 20 to 90%. Um, so somewhere in there. Um, <laughs> delirium is not only distressing to patients, we know that, we also know it's incredibly distressing to caregivers. And it's something we talk about with our patients for months afterwards if they are so fortunate to continue to be able to engage around that conversation. Um, it results in higher hospital costs, higher length of stay, and higher mortality rates, and um, therefore it's incredibly important. But fortunately, research is showing increasingly that 30% of cases of delirium can be prevented with a multidisciplinary approach to care. Yeah. And I think, as you said before, Wayne, that is a natural thought to geriatricians, but I also think that it's a um, it's a supportive and encouraging statistic. Mm -hmm. So 20 years ago, um, it was published that in a seminal article underlying the importance of focusing on cognitive stimulation, sleep deprivation, immobility, dehydration, and sensory impairments, such as visual and hearing impairments. And I don't know that there's been that much that has changed since that time. We know these are our focuses for um, stopping delirium, but as clinicians, it seems obvious around this, but to date, I think what's most interesting about this article is that almost all prior investigation has been centered in a single place, one clinical setting. And this article took a closer look at patients 65 years of age and older that were admitted to acute hospital wards, emergency departments, rehabilitation wards, nursing homes, and also in hospices hospice centers in Italy. Mm -hmm. um, it assessed for delirium with a short delirium assessment, as well as sensory deficits by a clinical evaluation. The study assessed the association between delirium and hearing and visual impairment, taking into account predisposing factors for delirium, specifically dementia, weight loss, and autonomy in activities of daily living. 25% of the approximately 3,000 patients studied were found to be delirious. Wow. This relatively large multi-site study again supports that patients with delirium did have a higher prevalence of hearing impairment, visual impairment, and in particular bisensory impairment when compared with those without delirium. The study supports the importance of close monitoring as well as routine screening for delirium in all the settings older adults might find themselves. Specific interventions by our multidisciplinary teams to implement strategies for optimal management of sensory impairment with hopes to prevent delirium really need to be taken into account. Hmm. Uh, folks, bring in, you know, bring in those glasses, bring in those hearing aids and put them in and put them on. They really really do make a difference in another paper to prove it. And uh, that seminal paper was Sharon Inouye, yeah. who now is with uh, the Harvard Geriatrics uh, Program. And I might also uh, guide um, our listeners to works by uh, Jim Rudolph down in Brown, who's published in JAMDA as well on delirium. So uh, I guess, uh, Dr. Brown, delirium is a continuing saga. <laughs> I would agree. <laughs> So uh, our last spotlighted paper, 
is once again a um, a fun paper. I, it's just um, you know the things that people are 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 looking at in in order to try to make better sense of of our of our world and and try to be innovative. Uh, Really something uh, entitled Diapers as Promising Alternative Collection Methods for Urine Specimens and Nursing Home Residents, a Non-Inferiority Study. And, you know, I was thinking about this and I made a little quip earlier about undergarment protection. You know, my wife is a pediatrician, so um, we often explain the difference is that she, uh, she takes her patients out of diapers and um, our patients tend to go towards undergarment protection. So um, it's a very, very good way of distinguishing pediatrics from, from geriatrics. But, um, you know, <laughs> the idea around this paper sounds like something that you do not want to happen in a, especially in a nursing uh, facility with regard to uh, collection methods for urine samples. But once again, uh, Dr. Sloan, um, you know, in the wisdom of the editors and the, in the interest of the writers, um, we're led to believe that perhaps something may be different here. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I'm gonna start with an anecdote uh, and, then, and then talk about the paper, you know. It's just this vision I have, you know, I was working in an emergency room as an emergency room doctor in a rural hospital at my department staff, which I did for about six years and from 2008 to 2015. So one evening I was charting at my desk when I heard these horrible blood curdling screams that was, you know, resonated the whole side of the building. And um, I went to investigate figuring, you know, we, we would get acute psychotics fairly often in this emergency department. And um, so, but no, it was a frail old woman, a nursing home resident who was being held by three staff members while a fourth was trying to insert a catheter. Wow. And to obtain a cath specimen that somebody had ordered. And I don't recall who it was, but you know, it could have been me. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't remember. Well, what this story exemplifies is that there's a disconnect between what the infectious disease specialists and microbiologists want which is a clean catch and cast specimen, you know, and the reality that nursing home staff face when they're ordered to obtain a specimen like this on a person with dementia. Hmm. And so, you know, we just don't think about it, but like, oh, go just get a urine, you know, just get a urine well. Uh, but this is why I found the paper so intriguing. You know, it's from a group of microbiologists and long-term care researchers in the Netherlands. You know, those people, they're all, they're all really into long-term care and they're kind of out of the box thinkers, some of the folks from the Netherlands. And so they're trying to invent a special kind of diaper that you can put on a nursing home resident after cleaning their perineum. And a few hours later, you remove it and extract the urine for analysis. You know, I mean, we've been joking about the nursing staff doing this for years, but maybe there's a way to do it because we have to realize the alternative is very um, assaultive to nursing home residents. So anyway, this was a preliminary study designed to determine how much a specimen would be affected by sitting in the diaper for several hours. It's an in vitro study, you know, it's very kind of phase one-ish. They had a random sample of about 250 urine specimens that had been submitted to their microbiology laboratory. And they divide each specimen into two parts. You know, one, they immediately set into the laboratory and did the testing. The other one, they kind of 
poured it or al I don't know what they did. They got into the diaper and poured it in the diaper and allowed it to sit there for three hours. Because they figured they put the diaper on, on average, that urine will be sitting there. You have to take it four or five hours later. And then they extracted urine by squeezing the diaper. <laughs> so the result was that 29% of the diaper specimens yielded bacterial growth. Their threshold was 10 to the fourth colonies per ml. And 26.2% um, of the reference specimens you know, without the diaper were positive. That's a 2.8% difference which is low enough that most of us would consider it not clinically meaningful. And it was statistically non-significant in this sample of 250 people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, diaper urine collection is far from ready for prime time, but I, for one, am, I'm intrigued by the possibility that someday we'll ask staff to clean a patient, put a specimen diaper on him or her, remove it after three or four hours, put it in a bag, refrigerate it, the diaper, put the diaper in a bag, refrigerate it and send it to the laboratory. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the deeper message here is, sure, this could be innovation in the future, but that folks who um, are deeply invested in the older adult population want to try to make healthcare um, a little bit easier uh, yeah. and try to meet them, meet the population where the population is. And um, I laud them for, well, first off, I, I, I laud the care that's being provided in, in the Netherlands. And I laud this group for, for trying to, uh, to figure out how to, um, how to better how, how healthcare approaches the older adult. I'm so okay. with you on that. You know, we traumatize, the healthcare system traumatizes people. Hmm. And when they don't understand what's happening, it is super traumatic. So while a fun article, a very, um, a very profound article on, on healthcare. And uh, once again, if, uh, if these spotlighted articles uh, have, uh, have pricked your interest a bit, imagine the rest of the issue. Uh, under the leadership of co-editors-in-chief, Drs. Philip Sloan and Cheryl Zimmerman, and with the support of editors like Dr. Mallory Brown, the Journal of the American Medical Director Association continues to be an impactful resource in post-acute and long-term care and beyond. Take a look, everyone, at the June 2021 issue. Fantastic. Um, Dr. Sloan, Dr. Brown, thank you again for spending your time with JAMDA on the go. Well, our pleasure, and thank you so much for getting the whole AMD on the go thing started. Mm -hmm. Great. Thanks, Wayne. Good. References for this podcast can be found at www.jamda.com. And until next time, I'm Dr. Wayne Saltzman for JAMDA on the go. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. If you are a physician and interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, go to our new learning management system at apex.paltc.org. Click on podcast and follow the link to this latest episode. Thank you.